You're listening to Yoga Crush, the podcast that offers chakra-spinning insights and winning strategies from inspiring yogis who've managed to create a thriving and crush-worthy yoga career. Here to help guide you on your yoga journey, your host and fellow yogipreneur, Suzanne Moscovich. You ready to flow? Welcome to the Yoga Crush Podcast. I'm your host, Suzanne. Thrilled to be here with you. For those of you who subscribed to my mailing list, you received a very important email announcement last week. And for those of you who are not subscribed, I wanted to share with you that this will actually be the second to last Yoga Crush episode that will be airing for the foreseeable future. I've made the very tough decision recently to take some time off from the podcast and from the Yoga Crush community to welcome a new baby into this world. It's a really exciting time, a magical time, and one that I really wanted to take time off to explore. And so I want to thank each and every one of you who have made this community what it is today. And that includes the guests on the podcast and the listeners. And I also wanted to thank each and every one of you who have reached out to me personally after that email announcement to congratulate me and just to say the most kind things about this space and this community that we've created. I am slowly getting to respond to each and every one of you. So please be patient, but thank you so much and just know that your words mean so, so much to me. But it is not over yet. We have two amazing episodes to go, including this week's episode, which I'm really, really excited about. So without further ado, let's get to the interview. Amanda Giacomini has dedicated her life to uplifting people and creating more beauty in the world through yoga and art. From teaching yoga at the White House to presenting at some of the biggest yoga festivals and conferences in the world, Amanda infuses the ancient teachings with creativity and joy. In 2001, along with her husband, MC Yogi, she founded Yoga Toe Studio in California. She's also been featured in Yoga International, Origins, Happiness and Wellbeing, as well as appearing on the cover of Yoga Journal and Mantra Magazine. As an artist, she created an award-winning series of children's books called Moe's Nose that featured her beloved rescued pitbull Mo as the main character. And she has a catalog of paintings inspired by her yoga and spiritual practice. Currently, she's working on a project to paint 10,000 Buddhas worldwide. Without further ado, let's get to the interview. Amanda, welcome to Yoga Crush. Suzanne, it's so nice to be here with you. (laughs) I'm thrilled to have you here. You bring a different light to the topic of yoga and yoga teaching for a number of different reasons, which we will dive into today. But before we do so, I would love if you would take us back in time and talk to us about when you completed your first ever yoga teacher training. What were the very first steps that you took to then pursue a career in yoga? Wow. (laughs) That is a long time ago. (laughs) So I did my first teacher training in 2000. And it was, you know, the birth of a new millennia. (laughs) And our training started on January 2nd. So Mm -hmm. it was an exciting time. And I had been practicing yoga for about six years with my teacher, Larry Schultz, at its yoga in San Francisco. And I absolutely loved yoga. It was already a big part of my life. I was practicing five or six days a week, you know, starting to really find community and friendships and um, through the yoga studio because I was there so much. So I started hanging out with a lot of yogis. And after about six years, my teacher kept encouraging me to take the training. I had no interest in becoming a yoga teacher, but I did have an interest in learning more and, you know, really delving into more of the philosophy and the culture that yoga came from. That really interests me. So I signed up. And my teacher used to tell me before, he's like, Amanda, you should take the teacher training. It's going to change your life. And I was like, 
change my life. You're like, I'm sure I'll learn more and, you know, that's going to be so cool, but change my life. And sure enough, I took the teacher training. I met my husband in the teacher training. Mm. Within a year, we had gone off to India, opened our own studio. I'd quit my job. I'd moved out of San Francisco and I had really totally overhauled my whole life. because wow. So it, um, it was a big catalyst in a series of events. And, um, but I, but I had no idea. I didn't see that coming and I didn't have a plan for any of that to happen. So, Mm -hmm. and so you said that that all happened within a year. Mm -hmm. So within a year of kind of overhauling your whole life and then opening a studio and then fast forward to today where you've so eloquently combined art, painting, yoga, storytelling, you're on the Wonderless tour. Was there kind of a pivotal aha moment that led you from then to where you are today? Well, I think that there was just a um, a sequence of against the, the whole, I feel like my life just kept unfolding and without me really knowing where it was going, I just kept following, you know, where I was drawn to following the love. And that is what brought me to India for the first time. And, um, that first trip that I took with my husband, MC Yogi was pivotal in a lot of ways. I think it just really lit us up, um, being in the birthplace of yoga practicing with teachers who had been teaching yoga for decades and then making the decision while we were in India that we wanted to become teachers, that we that we would open a yoga studio. Actually, it's kind of a funny story because when we were in India, we had two ideas, two entrepreneurial ideas. We're like, hmm, we could, maybe we could open a studio. And then my husband also was like, I I, I might like to open a juice bar. And <laughs> and, uh, and the funny thing is, is that I hate fruit. I'm like afraid of it. <laughs> I have like a fruit phobia. So I don't even know why I was on board with this at all. <laughs> I guess it shows how much I was in love with him. I was like, I'll even overcome my fruit phobia. It's going to make you happy. And while we were in India, he loved all the hand-painted signs. So he actually commissioned all these, you know, street artists to make all these signs on pieces of tin that said fresh juice. <laughs> and I'm like, he was going to open a juice store when we got home. And then when we got back and, and this was like 2001, there were internet cafes, but we weren't certainly traveling with laptops or smartphones mm-hmm. then. So we didn't have a ton of communication with our families back home. And when we got back to the States and got back to, um, Point Reyes, where his dad and his family have a store, his dad had somehow intuited that we would want to possibly open our own yoga studio and had built um, a doorway and a staircase for public access into a room that he had been using for privately to practice yoga in. So it was like this strange thing without any communication he basically, when we came home, he was like, please start teaching classes to the public. <laughs> so we put the juice bar, you know, <laughs> uh, idea to rest, which was a huge relief. <laughs> like, I didn't have to touch fruit. <laughs> so. <laughs> so would you say that you sort of had that entrepreneurial spirit before even going into teaching yoga? I did. I mean, my family is a very entrepreneurial family. Um, my father had his own company. My sister worked for my dad for years doing energy projects. And then my sister went to business school. And in business school, she decided instead of doing investment banking or going into the dot-com business, um, she wanted to open a luxury dog hotel. And so... Uh-huh. Um, in the three years or so leading up before I did my yoga teacher training, I helped my sister build her business and I was her marketing person. And so I left um, a job. I worked for a publisher, Harper, San Francisco, and I quit that job and I went to work for my sister. So we were a family owned business and we, it was a brick and mortar business. We had to design it from the ground up 
And, you know, so it was really, even before I did my training, I think I had a lot of built a lot of entrepreneurial skills in terms of this is how you manage your day. And you have to now meet with architects and you need permits. And what else do you need? Figure it out. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so coming back from India, like all lit up from this training and this year of change and transition, did anything change for you in actually opening the studio and taking on that business owner role? Um, let's see. Well, one, it really anchored me in the whole world of yoga because when we started our studio, it was a very small town. We were really young to start our own studio. You know, we had just done our teacher training a year ago and we were in our early twenties when we started our studio. And so we taught all of the classes ourselves for seven years. Wow. (laughs) Which is such a reality for so many yoga studio owners. Yeah. I mean, and we were the only staff. I mean, we weren't the only teachers. We were the only staff straight up. You know, we did everything ourselves. We designed the space. We painted it. We did all the marketing materials. I had some graphic design skills. um, And so I built the website and we were our janitors. We did all like we, we laid the pond in the backyard and you know, shoveled the gravel. Mm -hmm. It was really like a very all consuming um, project. But I think, I think my memory of it was that it was hard work, but it was also really fun. I remember how fun it was to own something and have my hands in every little part of it. And it was a small, you know, it was a small business and it wasn't overwhelming. And we kind of grew it organically. So. So talk to us about how that then transitioned into where you and your husband are now, which is doing the Wonderless tour. You're doing your 10,000 Buddhas project. You've really found a way to intersect the world of art and yoga, which we'll get into as well. But how did that whole transition take place? Well, it was, it was slow and gradual. Um, as I mentioned, we had our studio and we were the only teachers for seven years. And then, I mean, my husband always, he was always rapping and he was always rapping over the radio and he was always like loved hip hop and it grew up, you know, battling at house parties and being an MC. <laughs> and he would always tell me, you know, sweetie, you got to think about this when we're on our world tour, <laughs> well, how are we going to manage the studio? Or you're going to need to eventually like let go of controlling and, you know, get help with it. And I was like, world tour. I was like, you haven't even recorded a song yet. <laughs> <laughs> but he had that vision for years, mm-hmm. like since I met him. So, and it took seven or eight years for him to manifest his first album. Mm. Um, And when he did, and that was like, it's a whole story of how that came together, but he basically had this idea to, you know, create rap songs about Hindu mythology and yoga philosophy, which (laughs) was really out of the box. Yeah. And it was such a fresh and fun idea and a really great execution of the idea that when he released it, it just caught on. And because we had been teaching for seven years, we had a lot of friends in the yoga community and a lot of teachers who we had studied with. And I think that helped disseminate his music. And it just kind of got out there to enough yogis and the yoga community just, it caught fire. And I remember, um, a good friend of ours from Point Reyes was from Germany and he went home for Christmas. And when he came back, he's like, guys, I was at a yoga studio in Germany and they're playing your music, (laughs) you know, six months or so after it had released. So we were amazed that it had traveled, you know, that far to Europe already. Mm -hmm. And so, um, that happened that then he started getting invitations to, come to like yoga journal and, and, and perform. And, and that kind of broke us into, I think 
presenting and teaching outside of our home studio. Mm-hmm. And when you guys teach together, there's such a synergy there. Did you guys have the same style of teaching prior to your husband releasing his album and going on tour? Or did it evolve over time as that became a more present aspect in it? Um, We did have a similar style because we had the same teacher. So we had studied with Patabi Joyce. We had studied with Larry Schultz. Because we met so young and in our yoga teacher training, our whole yoga journey had been together. So we had a very similar approach to how to teach a class. Mm -hmm. And then um, when we were home, we wouldn't co-teach because it was small classes. I mean, for so many years, we'd have like three or four people in the class. So Mm -hmm. two teachers and four students is like a weird combination. Mm -hmm. But when he started to get invitations to perform and then they found out, oh, they're, they're teachers, you know, he we decided we wanted to also go on that journey together too, rather than me stay home and teach and he goes out, you know, to perform. So just so that we could stay together, we started to learn to co-teach so mm. that we could be together. And it wasn't easy at first. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah. Because you can be speaking to something that's so alive inside of you and then when you add another teacher in the room, there's a certain synergy that needs to happen. And you guys have to be on the same page, even just that day, moment to moment. How did that work out for you guys? Like, was there a process? I remember one of the first classes we experimented co-teaching. Well, we actually had a wonderful um, experience during our training. We saw Chuck Miller and Matias Rati, who were the original founders of, of Yoga Works in Santa Monica. Mm-hmm. They came and guest taught during our teacher training. And we saw them as a couple co-leading a class. And it was so beautiful and inspiring to us the way that, you know, he would carry it for a while and then they'd just look at each other and he would pass it off to her. And then, you know, it was just really smooth um, the way they taught. And I think that really inspired us. We also had had the opportunity to take classes from Sharon Gannon and David Life. And we saw how they co-taught, which was also very inspiring and very synergistic, the way they work together. And so those were our our real models of how we could Mm -hmm. do it. But I remember the first time we tried it out at our studio, you know, I would open the windows, he would shut the windows. (laughs) On the stereo, I would turn it down and we would give each other dirty looks. And then... Across the room, I was like, oh boy, we're going to have to really, you know, these kinks. And we learned to trust each other. We learned to, um, you know, when we passed it over to just trust the other person to, um, to do a good job and to say good things. And then we learned to wait until way after the class, once we were alone, if we had any issues, (laughs) Mm-hmm. about oh you said this or I said this um and I didn't agree with where you took that pose or something we would wait to do that privately after mm-hmm. so that the experience of the student wouldn't be you know marred by our disagreements <laughs> and so a huge part of growing as a yoga teacher is coming into your own voice did you find that you had found that before partnering with your husband and then you kind of had to work together to refine it with one another in a partnership or did you find that you guys kind of both found your voice in unison I think it was um it's something that we both grew and evolved over the years over time you know both separately and together because we were developing our voices when we taught our individual classes at our studio over the years and then you know finding out how to teach together I think he it was a gradual process of him experimenting with how to bring his music into a classroom setting Mm. and then at some point um over the years and I think it was very much inspired by my friend who's a amazing teacher Sianna Sherman Mm -hmm. and she introduced me to storytelling as part of a yoga experience. Mm -hmm. And I was 
just enraptured when she would tell the stories of the gods and goddesses. And one time we were doing a workshop and I had a, a book that had the story and I thought, oh, I'm going to share this story. And I, I didn't feel confident to just do it. So I was going to read it from the book. And at the last minute, I decided to go for it and just tell it from memory. Mm-hmm. And so I left the book in the other room and I told the story of Dorga and it just flowed. <laughs> I just mm. see it as I was telling it. It was like watching a movie and just describing what was happening in the movie. And I suddenly realized that I had a love and I also had a knack for remembering these stories and telling them. Mm-hmm. So that became something then that I could bring to the table when we co-taught is is this storytelling aspect. So sometimes when we teach a workshop at the beginning or at the end of the class, I'll do a story time. Yeah, let's dive deeper into the storytelling aspect because I noticed that as playing a huge role in your teaching. And I'm curious to hear how other yoga teachers can utilize storytelling to enhance their teaching and maybe even to facilitate a journey or an experience for their students on the map. Well, the stories I found are very powerful. They've survived for thousands of years and captured our imaginations for thousands of years. And I think there, many of them are really rich and imbued with so many teachings of yoga and philosophy. It's like in the architecture of the stories. And so I feel like they're powerful on a lot of levels. One, they're just, it's wonderful to be entertained and to listen to a story. So that's like the very first part of just having people be attentive. And the second part is just getting their imaginations and their senses involved with the story. And then the third is really seeing how storytelling and mythology can find like little awakenings in our understanding of yoga if from a different, it's like a creative way of getting us to understand something that maybe we couldn't quite understand if we just said the teaching outright. Hmm. And for those who are listening who want to dive deeper into the methodology and the stories, but don't quite have the knack for maybe reading them in their scripture and translating them, are there any resources or places that you've been able to gain this knowledge of the stories and in a way that's really stuck with you and that's been inspiring to you and that's been easy to absorb? I get this question all the time <laughs> when, um, when I tell stories because a lot of people, um, I think, respond to them. And my answer is I don't have a very good resource to share with people. I feel like a lot of the way I've learned the stories were at the feet of my teachers. Mm -hmm. And it's very much a tradition that is passed on orally. Um, There there are books where I've gotten bits and pieces, but a lot of times I have to pull together stories that I've heard um, combined with written versions and then, you know, make it my own in some ways. So um, I think maybe I might have to, record something. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's on my bucket list of things, <laughs> you know, to just do some, some of the stories and, and keep them going for people, you know. And so are you using those stories as a theme for your class and your sequencing? And are you using the imagery to help people get further into the poses in their bodies? Is that the essence of bringing the stories into your classes? Yes. I mean, I remember there's a part of the story of Dorga, who's a warrior goddess. And as she's preparing to do battle with the demon Mahisha, she goes up into the mountains and it's the winter and she stands in a freezing cold lake with her arms over her head (laughs) doing fire breath, you Mm. know, prepare to strengthen herself and to, you know, become, become tough so that she can face this challenge ahead. And so whenever I do a pose that's like that, like an ukatasana pose, like a a fire chair pose with my arms up and there's breathing or, um, 
then I, I often think of her and it adds a whole nother dimension to the practice instead of my mind going to, oh my gosh, I why are we doing this? I want this to be over. I think, wow, I'm getting strong. Like I'm a warrior goddess. And mm-hmm. Like- mm-hmm. <laughs> right. You see those characters reflected in, in you in those moments. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And it adds a whole level of meaning to the practices. Mm-hmm. Well, what's interesting is, I mean, you combine so many roles in your overall role, let's say as the yoga teacher or as an artist. And so you, there's storytelling in your artwork and there's storytelling in your yoga classes. I'm so curious to hear how you've been able to seamlessly intertwine all of these different passions of yours and in what way has like yoga complemented your visual artwork and how has your visual artwork and that practice complemented your yoga? How have you managed to bring them all together? Because a lot of people feel that in order to create a specific niche or voice for themselves, they have to focus their attention in one domain. And what's interesting about you is that you've brought all your passions together and that in itself has become sort of your niche. I feel lucky that I've been able to bring these two sides of myself together. I actually did art and, and before I found yoga. Mm-hmm. And then when I found yoga, my art was sort of put on the back burner for a long time because teaching seven days a week and mm-hmm. running the own, our own studio was really consuming. Sure. Um, and I think when I started to paint again after years of practicing yoga, the work that wanted to come through was just naturally related because yoga had really become the the centerpiece of my life. It's, it was like a total yoga nerd, you know? Like <laughs> I, I just ate, dr- slept, drank yoga all the time. I was always talking about it and, um, you know, married to a yogi and we just would geek out on it all the time. And then a lot of our friends were yogis. And so it was what I was thinking about most of the time. So when I started to make art again, I think it was only natural that it would be related Mm -hmm. to what I was interested in. Um, I think too, in my travels to India, I saw how art was being used to support spiritual practice Mm -hmm. and to be reminders for people to reconnect with these archetypes of the gods and goddesses and to be reminded of our own divinity. And so when I started to paint again, I really was doing it from a different, um, a different place and with a different purpose. So I think before yoga my art was more trying to figure out who I was and my you know my personal transformation and coming of age and working out my own demons on the canvas and then when I found yoga my art became more about sharing the beauty that I was experiencing in my practice Mm -hmm. with others so it really shifted um it really shifted its its purpose and i i found out in ancient india there was a a whole philosophy of art that was about creating an experience of yogic bliss in the viewer so the artist would create things of beauty and paint the gods and goddesses so that when someone saw them, they would spontaneously have that, like, Mm. you know, that be transported and and have a transcendent moment. And that was their, um, that was like a part of the culture was to create for that reason. So interesting. Well, you said something earlier, you know, in the beginning stages of your yoga career, you put your artwork on the back burner. And I think that's a reality for a lot of people starting out. Anything that they were previously quite passionate about, you know, yoga either takes over or it's a bit of a hustle and and their time doesn't allow for exploring those other things. 
And what I find interesting about this is that you did a speakeasy at Wonderlust and you spoke about the intersection of, of yoga and creativity and you talked about how oversaturating our senses and in other words, numbing out in some ways, watching Netflix and oversleeping and overeating can dull the ebb and flow of, of creativity. Mm-hmm. And I think that In some ways, yoga teachers who are trying to turn their practice into a business struggle a lot with time management. And so there is in some ways that oversaturation, whether we're spending too much time on social media or whatever it may be. Or overworked, exactly. And so I'm curious to hear what did you do to start experiencing more moderation? How did you, and how do you structure your day now so that you can explore all of these different facets of your yoga? Um, It's a great uh, and important thing, I think, for everybody to make space for creativity. Um, I feel it's a source of great joy and relaxation and coming back to ourselves. And I think a lot of us tend to think of it as a luxury and something we'll do when all our other chores are taken care of and all our other responsibilities. And I know that while I loved teaching yoga and running my studio, definitely part of the reason why art wasn't present during those years is because I was tired Mm -hmm. because I was trying to do everything myself. And I didn't have the space, like the mental space to let, to, to be creative. And so I can really relate to that. Um, being a young teacher and just not to mention our studio did not support us for many years. So when we started, not only was I doing all the teaching, but I had two other jobs Mm. (laughs) that I did in order to, you know, pay the bills. So I was um, continued to work for my sister at the dog hotel and I did graphic design on the side. Um, my husband also worked at his dad's feed store delivering hay and worked at a pizza parlor. I mean, we, wow. we um, had to really do other things to make things work financially, but we continued to teach because that's what we love to do. And it was a, it was, I think it took years, maybe five or six years for us to slowly be able to let go of those other part-time jobs. Mm-hmm. And then, so I guess my point is like, it's, it was a gradual process of slowly, slowly over time, the studio became more stable and started to support itself. Eventually now 15, 16 years in, we have other teachers, we have a part-time manager. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it's been easier for me to carve out time for art, but it took, it was not an easy process to make that time. (laughs) Um, so I, I relate to people who are struggling with that. And all I can say is you, you know, just keep going and, and try to find work that supports you financially, but don't ever give up on your dreams. Keep doing what you love as well. I think that's so reassuring to hear because I think, you know, even in this day and age and, and millennials, especially like we're used to that instant gratification. So when something doesn't happen overnight, it's so easy to get discouraged, but to hear that you and your partner have kept at it for 16 years to get it to where it is right now is so inspirational other than the drive and the passion, what was keeping you guys going in the times when you were like, is this even worth it? I don't think we ever questioned whether it was worth it. Mm. I, I just think that we, we loved it and we would have taught yoga if it never supported us. Mm-hmm. You know, we would have just had other jobs and, and continued to teach. So I think that was, um, that was just like a core, um, I don't, I don't know, a core value that we had in our lives was Mm -hmm. to share that because we found so much pleasure in it. We wanted to share it with other people. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, I think 
even with my art, I never wanted there to be financial pressure on my art. Like mm. it's great that I now some people will buy a painting or buy prints. It's so fun for me still when orders come in. Mm-hmm. I can't believe people outside my family are buying. <laughs> <laughs> still so exciting, but I never want to. Um, I would so much rather do something else to make the finances work than, than, than put too much financial pressure either on my yoga or my art. Yeah, that's a common thing that I hear with a lot of yoga teachers who have other full-time jobs and I think wish to be doing it full-time, but also feel that they, they don't want to put that kind of pressure on something that they're so passionate about and that they do out of such love and such dedication and such passion. So at this point though, you don't have any of those other jobs supporting, (laughs) supporting you. So how did that happen? And can you be super specific about the timeline so that our listeners really get a sense of how this built over time? Um, Let's see. So I'm, I did my training in 2000. In 2001, we opened our studio. In 2008, MC Oki released his first album, Elephant Power. That's when we started to travel and teach. In 2000, oh my gosh, <laughs> I'm trying to remember. So then after that, I can't remember when we started to it's like there weren't that many festivals back then. Right. It was a journal conference. And the first time we went to it, he was invited um, as a guest of Sharon and David, the Jiva Mukti co-founders, mm-hmm. to come as like a guest in their workshop to share his music. And so that was the first time we attended the yoga journal conference. And I can't remember, I want to say like maybe 2009. Mm-hmm. And then slowly he started to get invited and we started to get invited as a couple to teach and can't remember when the first wonderlust was i think it was 7 years ago so maybe like 2010 mm-hmm, that's um, accurate our friend siana sherman had been invited to teach at the first wonderlust and she again brought us in as her guests and so he wasn't hired to teach at the first wonderlust but showed up to share his music and the founder, Jeff Krasno, um, I guess heard him sing or found out at the moment what he was doing and gave him a class. And I remember it was 11 PM the night before he was supposed to teach. And at that point, Wonderless had kind two kinds of stages. They had one for um, teaching yoga and one for music. They weren't really combining them. Mm-hmm. So the, stage for mute for yoga didn't have a very good sound system but it had a flat level ground and shade because it was hot up in <laughs> the stage for music had a big stage and a big sound system but really sort of rocky and rolly ground and no shade sure so at the last minute the night before we decided that he would teach half the class and do yoga on the yoga stage and then do a parade to the other side <laughs> and get on the stage and do the second half of the class as the performance. And I guess someone from the New York Times attended that experience and then wrote, MC Yogi is like the epitome of what Wonderlust is. <laughs> he's like teaching yoga and he's putting his foot behind his head and then he's like singing and dancing on the stage. And and that just was like the beginning of our relationship with um, that organization. He ended up getting invited back over and over again Mm -hmm. um, and doing a ton of work um, all over the country and in Canada with one or less. So um, I guess why I'm saying all this is that it, (laughs) he wasn't even properly invited the first year, you know, Mm -hmm. it was like he snuck in basically with a friend. Well, what's so beautiful about that though, at least from my perspective is we had Matt Giordano on the show earlier and we also had Chelsea Chorus and they both told the story of same thing. They weren't necessarily invited to teach it, but they told the story of how MC Yogi called them up on stage and they were like, oh my God, MC Yogi is calling us up on stage. And so to see how that all kind of 
comes around full circle is really inspiring. And what it reminds me of is this idea of collaboration. And you and MC Yogi, you seem to surround yourself with like-minded people and people who have propelled you both forward down this path and this journey. And so can you speak to our listeners a little bit about what that's been like for you and how you have maybe not intentionally sought out these collaborations, but how it's really fed your career and your journey? Well, it was, you know, as I mentioned in the beginning, when his music came out, it was, it was people like Sharon and David who saw, um, you know, a creative spark and something exciting and would invite us to their, you know, they were like the headliners of of yoga journal and invite us in. And then when we had the opportunity to have a big class, um, then we would invite our talented friends to come join us. And in the first couple years of Wonderlust, we brought DJ Dresden. He wasn't even hired by the festival. Mm-hmm. And then now he's a mainstay, you know, mm-hmm. and soul rising. Another yoga DJ is somebody that, um, that, we kind of brought into that world as well. So we got to pay it forward because a lot of our yoga mentors and friends included us when they were doing cool stuff. And then because of it, I feel like, oh my gosh, there were some amazingly creative and fun collaborations when a lot of us would be together um, Mm -hmm. at these events where we would do one class and Shakti Sunfire would be hula hooping and <laughs> the acro yogis would be turning everybody upside down and and Siana and I would tell stories and this and that would happen. It was just so alive and so much fun and it really um it really I think created the the festive in the festival. <laughs> yeah. Of um instead of being all in our separate little cubicles, separate little corners doing our own thing, it was when we got to collaborate with our our friends and our peers, that the magic really happened. Definitely. And I think if I were to extract sort of the wisdom from that for our listeners, it's you don't have to wait to be invited to these types of things. It's I think it really is about seeking out people in your community that you jive with and being ready and willing to create and share an opportunity with them. And, you know, I see so many yoga teachers with this scarcity mindset and this feeling and this need to kind of, I guess, feel like they can't share or feel like they need to protect what they have because it could be taken away. And what I see from so many of my yoga crushes is that in that sharing and in that collaboration is really how we all benefit and how all of these dreams sort of manifest. So it's really beautiful to watch. Mm. Oh, I am so in agreement with that. And, and I think Maybe it's that pressure that we spoke about before making like if you are feeling like you're financial independent, you know, like to put food and pay your rent is coming through your yoga. You might be more um, in a in a tense place about it mm-hmm. do you know what I mean? in a fearful place about sharing and collaborating because you're you've got your you're feeling scary job security issues mm-hmm, for sure. Um, so I think it's important to watch out for that, you know. Um, I feel really lucky that we now can, like our studio is very self-supporting and, and you know, we are um, very successful as teachers and artists. And, and I think it, it was a long, long road to get there. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think the other thing is while we were growing our artistic careers, it's funny how we had odd jobs to support the yoga studio when that was new. And then we kept teaching at the yoga studio and that supported us when we were then growing our artistic careers. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. So Absolutely. it was like this slow shift of like odd jobs and things to support the yoga. And then finally the yoga got stable enough and that became really supported us while we were young in our sharing of our art and music. And I believe that just goes to show you, you know, where you put your energy, that's what will grow. And Mm -hmm. so you guys put your energy there, you built a platform to stand on and so that that could then propel you to the next level or to the next project. Mm -hmm. 
So that's really cool. Speaking of projects, I'd love for you to speak to us about your 10,000 Buddhas project. I think it's fascinating and I love the way that you've married this with your brand. It's really become your brand in a lot of ways. So speak to us about what that's all about and how you've actually been able to monetize parts of that as well. Sure. Um, Well, the project was inspired by um, a trip to India where I went to go visit the Ajanta Caves. And inside these 2,000-year-old Buddhist caves, I saw a very ancient old painting of a thousand little Buddhas sitting together meditating. Mm -hmm. And that just, I just fell in love with that image. It, It stayed with me for years until I sort of just longed to see it again, but I couldn't go back to to the caves <laughs> far away. So I just decided to paint them and it became more of a personal practice. I was just making this painting for myself and I um, started to paint Buddhas on a big, uh, a big eight foot um, panel. And toward the end of finishing that painting, I was like, oh, this was such a fun process. Just coming in and painting kind of the same thing, these little Buddhas over and over again, I felt like sad that it was ending the way that one might feel sad when you're about to finish a really good book and you're really, (laughs) you're really like feel close and intimate with the characters and you don't want the story to end. That's how I felt. And so it sort of came to me, um, when I was finishing that first painting that I didn't have to end this communion, this relationship that I was having with these Buddhas, I could just keep going. And I had this idea to paint 10,000. And it became, um, at first, just a really enjoyable personal practice for me of meditating on the Buddha, learning more about Buddhism. I didn't know that much about it in the beginning. So I read all kinds of books from you know, going back to Siddhartha to, you know, Robert Thurman lectures about Buddhism. And it became like my own personal practice of painting Buddhas and and listening to Buddhist texts and (laughs) stories. Um, And then it became really fun to play as an artist with size and scale and different media. So as I continued to paint, I didn't paint the same way. I changed my media. I learned how to do spray paint and stenciling. I learned how to do printmaking and letterpress, and wheat pasting, all these other kinds of things I'd never done before um, until I uh, started to have so many Buddhas in my, <laughs> in my space that I really needed to, like, if I was going to keep making them, I needed to also release some of them into the world where mm. I was- buried in Buddha painting. Luckily, my father-in-law has a space uh, here in Point Reyes that's an art gallery, and it's part of the barn and the general store. So he gave me a show, my little hometown, and I um, started to share the project that I was working on. And people seemed to really respond to it and and started to buy paintings. And then um, I had this vision of wouldn't it be cool? I started to see them really big, like on the sides of buildings. And that's when I had the idea that I could maybe expand them and grow them to be mural sized. And then that just became like a whole big part of the project of making public art and Mm. um, traveling and making these paintings of murals of Buddhas all over the country. And so... um, And this has really fostered some community building. Could you explain to us how that crept into it? Um, Well, as soon as I started painting the murals at the very first wall I did in Miami, when we were done, um, my husband was like, well, you, you should put your Instagram handle, like you should sign it. And I had um, just recently joined Instagram with the name 10,000 Buddhas. So instead of signing my name, Amanda Giacomini, I made an at 10,000 Buddhas at the bottom of the painting. Then I left Miami and sure enough, I started getting tagged and I saw all these people posing in front of my 
wall. Mm. <laughs> so cool because they were usually like doing a yoga pose or sitting in meditation. Um, um, then as the, I continued to paint walls in different areas, I, I could see people comment. People would tag me, you know, things very much removed from my own little circle of people who I knew in the world would would know that that was my art and then tag me and um I would see people like oh I saw the one in LA did you see the one in DC <laughs> I was like oh my gosh this is so cool to watch that um you know the ownership of the art is no longer mine it's public mm -hmm. and um it just was a really exciting thing to to discover and be part of yeah, I mean, it's really taken off and become almost like iconic within the yoga community, especially on Instagram, at least that <laughs> I've noticed. And I think it's so fascinating. And I'm, I mean, I'm a marketing girl, so I'm always thinking about branding and stuff like that. And I actually recognized the work before I had actually attended any of your classes before the Wonderless Festivals. And so it was like, and then marrying your face to it, it was just now it's like when I see that, I see your face. And so to me, it created a really strong brand identity and kind of created a structure container for the trajectory of your yoga teaching and for you as a leader in, in the community, which I thought was really, really fascinating because it's an interesting way to go about it. And it happened really organically, at least yeah. from the outside. It, it happened so organically that I didn't even, a, a few years ago, I was at a festival just walking around and someone just called out to me like, Hey, 10,000 Buddhas. <laughs> and then I, you know, I was back in Miami years after I painted the wall at a restaurant and someone said, Hey, there's MC Yogi and 10,000 Buddhas. Like that's what people were calling me. They, mm. no one could remember Amanda Giacomini. That's like <laughs> a of marbles. But I was like, Oh, that's so funny. That's how I'm being, that's, I'm being known for that now. And it, it really was like a fun surprise. And then I was like, okay, that's, you know, if I'm going to be known for something, that's a cool thing to be known for. So I just went with it. And the aesthetic of it though, is also so representative of your teaching in some way. It's the storytelling behind it. And it's the, you know, a lot of yoga teachers think of themselves as, as technicians, right? We think about the anatomy and I find that your style is so much more fluid with its storytelling. And so it's so representative. I just, I've been fascinated from a marketing perspective to see how building a brand in that way has worked for you and how it's, it's really spoke to you as a personal brand. Well, I love, I love that. And I guess maybe it's just because it comes from a real true That's place. It. Exactly. It's my real true practice. Exactly. And, and if that means that that's why it was successful. That's, that's great. Mm -hmm. Um, I think too, what you spoke about and, and even with your mission with, with yoga crush is about collaboration and about connection. And to me that the image of the Buddha sitting together is representative of mm -hmm. that. And it's how I've always felt. I never wanted to really stand out as a singular personality, either as a yoga teacher or even as an artist, but this, um, the image that I like to paint over and over again is one of community of people practicing together and supporting each other through doing that. And so, um, it feels, it just feels really good to share that. Yeah. It all comes full circle for sure. And I just think that the way that you and MC Yogi have redefined the role of a yoga teacher is fascinating in that regard as well, because I think that a lot of people have different ways of defining yoga teaching, but what comes to mind when I see you guys both teaching together and when um, I watch you and your art is artistry. And I think about yoga as an art form and yoga teaching as an art form, and that really comes through. Well, I think we're just, we're, we're happy to have found a way to express ourselves, you know, in, in a lot of different ways through, you know, like you said, weaving it together has mm -hmm. been a real joy. Absolutely. 
Well, something that I ask all my yoga crushes is if you can break down for us how many revenue streams that you've secured for yourself, and if you can sort of take us through what these income streams consist of and how they support you in your career. Okay. Well, um, I come to realize now that I run three businesses, (laughs) (laughs) Um, I run a yoga studio uh, I run my own art business and I, I manage and help run, uh, MC Yogi's career, you know, in terms of all the finances, like I, I'm basically the, the chief financial officer. <laughs> <laughs> That's really refreshing to hear because I think a lot of people assume that people who are at the same level that you are in your career only focus on the teaching or, or the outward product, but there is a lot that goes on behind the scenes. Oh, there's so much administration, <laughs> you know, including um, having to learn um, QuickBooks and really manage our finances in a smart way because we are um, entrepreneurs and our revenue streams are not steady every month. There's Mm -hmm. like festival season and then there's like winter where he doesn't perform at all for like three or four months. Mm -hmm. So you have to manage those income streams. Um, I, years ago, I did a great workshop, um, with a woman who taught about how to manage money from a yoga place. Mm. And I'm blanking on her name, but I will email it to you. So you <laughs> yeah. Um, sure. And it was so helpful to, she talked about how finances, we, we kind of had this blind spot in the spiritual world of, oh, finances are like dirty. We shouldn't talk about money. We shouldn't, you know, share about money. Um, if we're spiritual. And she said that in her, um, in her work was trying to dissolve that idea Mm -hmm. and, and help us to see that finances were just a way to, to help manifest our dreams, to help bring our dreams from the ideal realm down into reality. Mm -hmm. And that finances was a big piece of that. And she also gave us very practical skills of how to monitor you know, expenses and income. Mm -hmm. And she was like, you have to keep track. She's like, a lot of us fall asleep either when we're shopping or after the fact or recording or paying our taxes. Like there's places where we just shut down around finances. Yeah. So I then really took it on, um, to be really, to weave my financial world as part of my, like not have it be outside, but to really operate financially with a lot of integrity. And that meant like paying my bills on time, being really upfront about um, business relationships and contracts and, and just trying to be as clean as possible mm. and up and transparent as possible. And um, I did learn how to use QuickBooks. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I can now, now it's so great. I used to do this all by paper statements, but recently upgraded to the QuickBooks that syncs your bank accounts, Mm -hmm. um, and credit card statements. So now everything that comes in, I track what, you know, I track every expense and every income, um, on that. And so I can see, so we have, let's see, we have our revenue from our yoga studio and we have, our revenue from um, going out and teaching outside of our studio, revenue from MC Yogi's performing, revenue from MC Yogi royalties from music that he's put up. Um, and then I have revenue from uh, selling art and T-shirts and journals and things like that on my web store. Um, and... Pretty soon, too, he's come out with a book that's going to release in the fall. So we'll have uh, another income stream from from books, which is really cool. That's awesome. And it seems like there's a bit of passive revenue in there, too, with the book and the royalties yeah. as that, well. That's really nice. It's not a huge part of our income, but it's a nice little passive income is really sweet because mm-hmm. you've put the work in already. You've made the investment. 
and then it just like pays you back a derivative over time. And um, it, it's like, you know, I don't know that much about investing, but that's kind of when you invest in a company, right? You get these mm-hmm. little derivative payments. Right. So you create assets. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, it's it's good to, I like having the balance. There are times when, um, you know, the studio revenue is down, but something else is up or performance is down for a while, but this other thing is I'm selling a bunch of paintings this month and I had a show or so it's nice to, uh, I feel like it really gives me a sense of security that it's not all coming from one place. Well, that's it. And that's why we encourage our listeners to look for different income streams and to find ways to repurpose their existing work into different revenue streams so that they don't feel the pressure of it all coming from one place. And especially as entrepreneurs, we know that different times of year, can, it, things are busier and less busy. And so it's important to plan for that. Yeah. And, and also plan, well, plan for your taxes, like make Mm -hmm. sure that you're putting enough away and that you're making estimated taxes so that you don't get a surprise if you start to do well one year that I thought I was doing well, but now I have to give it all to the government. Right. (laughs) Right. Exactly. (laughs) We had that happen one year and it was a big surprise. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And it's unfortunately something that a lot of people just learn through experience, but that's what's beautiful about these types of interviews and resources is that, and it's, it's not something that they tell you in a yoga teacher training all the time. So it's important to talk to other entrepreneurs and, and people in the industry to know how they're doing it. And everybody has a different system for it. Yeah. Before we say goodbye, I actually have the three minute flow round, which is my favorite part of every show. So we will flow through a series of questions over the course of three minutes or less. Are you ready to flow? Okay, ready. (laughs) (laughs) So to start us off, what non-yoga related book should every yoga teacher read and why? Oh, a non-yoga related book. Uh Uh-huh. Oh, I was just thinking of like, I'm just, I'm so stuck on the book I just read, (laughs) which is not necessarily a book every yoga teacher should read, but it was uh, Bruce Springsteen's memoir. Oh, interesting. And it's so fascinating. Um, And I think it's a story of like how he made it as an artist and where that drive came from and all the obstacles he had to overcome. And I think it tells the story of how he put in the 10,000 hours and, you know, we just know him as Bruce Springsteen, but the book goes back to all the thousands of little grunge, little garage bands he was in in New Jersey before <laughs> he ever, you know, became famous. So um, I think it's a good, good lesson um, about, you know, doing something long enough over a long period of time to get the merit from it. And mm-hmm. that is a yogic teaching. So maybe not necessary reading for every yoga teacher, but a great story <laughs> and definitely has, um, you know, yogic value in it. Awesome. At the start of your journey, what held you back from being the successful yoga crush that you are today? Oh, um, Lack of confidence, lack of feeling like I had something worthy to share, um, lack of feeling like anyone would ever want to purchase my art other than my family. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so, yeah, I had a lot of just insecurity around um, sharing my work in the beginning that I had to overcome. What is the best business advice that you ever received? Be honest and have integrity with your deals. Like don't don't try to negotiate a deal that's really good just in your favor. In the end, it breeds a sourness in relationships and that relationships are the most important thing in business. And so if you are are easy to work with, you're professional, you're straightforward and you are generous with people that will come back to you a hundredfold over the course of your life. Mm -hmm. What personal habit contributes most to your success? Um, (laughs) (laughs) I, I think 
Uh, secretly, it's mantra practice hmm. has really been a deep support of me just wielding my mind so that I can point it in the right direction mm-hmm. um, and and steer the course of my life. I think mantras have really have created this like wonderful source of energy and and um, yeah, shakti that has propelled me forward. What is your personal mantra that keeps you grounded in times of doubt? Um, follow the love. Imagine that you've woken up in an alternate universe. It is identical to earth, except you know absolutely no one. All your basic needs are taken care of. You have all the same experiences and skill sets, but you have no relationships, no connections, and no social media followers. What are the first steps that you take towards pursuing a successful yoga career? Um, creating a space. And uh, as my one of my teachers says, you, you put up the sign. You, you put up the placard that says, yoga classes here (laughs) and then you just start teaching Mm -hmm. and you just you teach whether nobody shows up you teach at the same time you know you commit to a a schedule that you can keep and you just keep doing it until somebody finds out Mm -hmm. and then you just keep going from there you build it one pebble at a time (laughs) what three actions do you recommend that our listeners take today to implement what we've discussed in this podcast Hmm. Um, I would say take an inventory of what you're doing for work and really look at how much energy you're putting out for each thing and how much it's giving back to you and maybe look at and see if that's a healthy balance, you know, if see if there's a way that you can, um, if you're in a healthy relationship with your career where you're not, you're giving out as much as you're receiving. And if not, maybe look at how you might shift that. Mm -hmm. Interesting. A yoga crush is an inspiring and innovative individual who has built a thriving, meaningful, and sustainable yoga career. Based on this definition, who is your ultimate yoga crush? Mm. Um, Well, I can think of Quite a few, I would say. Right now, my my sweet yogini sister Siana Sherman pops into my mind mm-hmm. because I um, value her depth of her teaching, the depth of her study, and her creativity, and how she shares her life and the joyfulness. She taught me a lot about how traveling and sharing, you know, around the world could be a really fun adventure. And so she's my yoga crush. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Amanda, for taking the time to share with us today. Before we say goodbye, let our listeners know where they can go to connect with you. Uh, Sure. Um, I have a website. It's 10,000buddhas.com. It's one and four zeros buddhas.com. And then on Instagram, it's the same uh, at 10,000buddhas. And... I think I have a Facebook page with the same name. (laughs) I think Twitter, I'm 10K Buddhas because 10,000 was taken. (laughs) It's a little different, but yeah. Awesome. Well, we will have the link to all of those in our show notes today. Thank you again for taking the time and for sharing with us. Oh, absolutely. Thank you so much. And there you have it. Thank you as always for listening. If you were tuning in while you were on the go, not to worry, we have all the show notes and links shared from today's episode available for you over on the website, yogacrush.co slash podcast. Just select this episode and dive in. I cannot wait to share with you our final episode, which will go live next week. Until then, keep crushing it. Keep crushing it.